Today I will be reading passages from Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on, on your own understanding. In all ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Good morning, Willingdon family. As Pastor Ray mentioned earlier, today we're beginning a new sermon series on the book of Proverbs. God is concerned about the details of our lives, and Proverbs gives us wisdom for those details. Here we learn how to talk to unreasonable people, how to use our money wisely, how to conduct ourselves in business, how to plan, how to respond to the poor, how to remain sexually pure, and so on. Now, over the past few months, we've been going through Romans and have been reminded weekly about our unchanging position before God through Christ. Jesus said that he came to give us abundant or flourishing life, the kind of life that God has designed us for. His death, resurrection, and his rule has rewired us. We're now new people. And Proverbs alerts us to the details of this flourishing life. And here we find out that it's all important. The tone of our voice, whether or not we've rolled our eyes in disgust or winked them in deceit, whether we've pulled the weeds out of the flower bed, whether we've treated our animals kindly, whether we've tidied up our rooms, God cares about the details. Proverbs is instruction from parents to their children about wise and good living. And you could think of Proverbs like a box full of precious jewels. You can reach in anywhere into that box and pull out a diamond or a ruby or a sapphire. In fact, one of the Proverbs actually says that wisdom is better than diamonds and more desirable than gold. And so throughout this book, we see the father reaching into that box and pulling out one jewel after another. It's the father's precious gift to the child, pearls of wisdom about life. And it works so much better than nagging. Rather than repeating, would you stop chatting with your friends and do your homework for the 20th time? The parent could introduce wisdom. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty, 1423. Let that wisdom sink in, and the kids can recall it when they're older. So this summer, we're looking at some of the topics on which Proverbs offers wisdom. Our speech, our friendships, pride, conflict, listening, and more. But where does Proverbs begin? Does Proverbs give us a starting point for wisdom? Chapter 9, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. In Hebrew, it it reads literally, the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. This is the beginning point. It's most important, according to this wisdom, that a person know how to relate properly to his Creator. Do you remember from Romans one twenty two the description of humanity who chose to step away from God and to do life on their own? Romans one twenty two claiming to be wise, they became fools. The vertical relationship precedes all horizontal ones. We need to learn to look up before looking around. The name of the Lord appears 85 times in Proverbs. Right relationship to him is the foundation of a wise life. He's the source of wisdom. The Lord gives wisdom. No person is ever outside his gaze. A man's ways are in full view of the Lord. He's constantly watching. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. 
Knowing the Lord is the one thing that helps us respond to the really bad stuff in life. To fear the Lord is to hate evil and to help us live longer. For the fear of the Lord adds length to life. If I want safety and protection, I must know the Lord, for the way of the Lord is a refuge for the righteous. But the Lord tears down the proud man's house. Well, one of the most well-known parts of Proverbs is the passage that was read earlier, chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. These verses are a set of two couplets. The first is verses 5 and 6, the second verses 7 and 8. And in each couplet, there's one key imperative verb or command. Verse 5, trust. Verse 7, fear. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, verse 5, and fear the Lord, verse 7. So as we prepare to explore the ways of wisdom in Proverbs, we begin with our relationship to God, and those two words, trust and fear, describe our basic posture towards Him. So first, trust. The first posture regarding the Lord is to trust Him. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And this word trust is defined by one Hebrew scholar, expresses the sense of well-being and security, which results from having something or someone in whom to place confidence. It describes something we do every day in a million ways. I wake up in the morning. I trust that the floor will not cave in under me when I stand on it. I brush my teeth, and I trust that no one has poisoned my water supply. I drive my car, and I trust that I will make it safely to my destination and then home again. My children go off to school. I trust that they'll come home again. I trust that my wife will be there at the end of the day. I trust that someone at the bank won't embezzle all my money. I trust that the bus driver knows how to drive a bus. Every day I I express trust in a number of ways, most of which I don't even notice. And it's healthy to be able to trust. Those who are unable to trust suffer for this inability. And some are so unable to trust others that they become neurotic and they need medication to settle their souls. This word lends to the sense of feeling secure, being unconcerned. It's partnered with the word peace in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Remember we had said that, the proverb, that Proverbs is instruction from parents to children. What do parents want most for their children? Now, if they want them to succeed in academics, they'll put them in Kumon every, every week several times. Uh, if it's important that the kids become good athletes, they'll gladly get up at 5 a.m. every day and take them to hockey or swimming practice. But if parents want their kids to be good and happy, they'll first teach them how to trust the Lord. To trust the Lord with all my heart, my entire being, means that I don't have to go through life fearful and suspicious, always looking over my shoulder, always worried about every little decision, always thinking about the next person who might want to rip me off. I don't want my life or the lives of my kids to be one of mistrust. I want us to be able to find someone that we can trust and that this trust will then fill our lives with peace. And Proverbs identifies that one person as the Lord. Trust in him with all your heart. Now, this is a nice scripture. It's a favorite for many. It looks good as a meme or on a fridge magnet. But the demands of this trust that will lead to peace are great. It asks us to put, as we say in English, all of our eggs in one basket. It's really the opposite of most worldly wisdom. If I take out mutual funds, for example, my advisor will tell me to diversify because you can't completely trust any one fund. 
If one lets you down, you've still got five others you can count on. And do we find ourselves keeping our options open in life like that? Is there some thought deep down that God may not come through for me, so I'd better take care of things myself? The wisdom of Proverbs gives an alternative to trusting God, and it's found in the second half of verse 5, trusting in our own understanding. There's such a place as false trust or misplaced trust. Once my wife Joy was having a Bible study at our dining room table with a lady who trusted in our chairs. Now, when you sat down in your chair this morning, you did it probably without any thought that the chair is anything other than trustworthy. Well, at one point in their study, the lady's chair suddenly and completely fell apart and she found herself crashing to the floor. I hope your chairs are more trustworthy than ours were. But that's the way it is with misplaced trust. The object of trust may appear perfectly good, and it may seem trustworthy, but it is, in fact, unreliable. And what is this thing in Proverbs that we are not to trust? Our own understanding. Don't lean on your own understanding. The word for lean is the same word used to describe what someone does with a cane. They put their weight on that cane, and it supports them. Our own understanding refers to the conclusions we come to when we look at life. It describes Samuel looking at the sons of Jesse and assuming the oldest and biggest was God's chosen. God warns Samuel, don't look at the outward appearance, for God looks on the heart. Proverbs asks us to admit that our understanding is skewed in so many ways. We are easily deceived by size and beauty, and we enter the world's game of trying to be the brightest and the best, to be rich and to be smart. My own perspective is always limited by my own vision, and there's so much that I cannot see. The future, what another person will do, and even my own motivations. It's like a camera shot that looks at something from a certain angle. Once in another country, I got a traffic ticket. I drove on the shoulder of the road, and there happened to be a traffic camera there that took my picture. A few weeks later, I received a notice that I owed a sum of money for breaking the rules of the road. And what the camera did not see, that I was actually swerving to miss an accident. And I had no choice but to move on to the shoulder. Now, I was living in a country that wouldn't accept any excuse, so I had to pay the fine or else forfeit my license. But our own understanding is like that. It's limited by our own tunnel vision. And only God can ever see the full picture, the beginning and the end, and every person's true motives. Trust in Him. Don't lean on your own understanding. There's one way to express this kind of trust, and this one way is found in verse 6. By acknowledging Him in all your ways. For the second time, we see the word all, all your heart. All your ways. Make trust in God your basic disposition in life. Set your heart on Him. Trust in Him for all of life. And express that heart by acknowledging Him in all your paths. Let Him be present every step you take along the way. Welcome Him into every conversation, into every plan, into every pursuit, into every relationship, every hobby, every interest. Make it your deepest effort to acknowledge God in all of life. This is the expression of trust. And we could say that to the extent that we've acknowledged God in the details of life is the extent to which we have trusted Him. And this will be the extent of your peace. I I believe that the degree of peace that we feel in life is always in proportion to our trust in God. 
When Joy and I are in the car and I'm driving, I always find it amazing that we can see identical situations from such different perspectives. I can see the car in front of me, the one that's just stepped on his brakes, as being quite a good distance away. And in my mind, I still have plenty of time to slow down. She, however, somehow sees the car as if it's just a few inches away, and she'll let out a shriek as if it's the last sound she'll ever utter. Now, I feel at peace. Things are completely in control. She feels afraid that things are not in control. Now, I may turn to her and say, trust me, I see the car, and I'll slow down. Would she be wise to trust me? Well, it would depend on my driving record and whether or not I'm short-sighted or far-sighted, or whether I'm well-rested or haven't slept for days, or whether I have the habit of looking at other things when I'm driving. The exhortation to trust in the Lord with all your heart tells us to let him drive the car of our lives and to rest in his ability to handle the vehicle and to get it to where it needs to go. Your perspective on what's up ahead on the road may or may not be accurate. And we will let, when we let out a shriek, something that might sound a lot like whining about the life that God's given us, we may very well be saying, the driver doesn't really know what he's doing. I need to take this vehicle into my own hands. And God wants us to know the peace of being a passenger, not the driver, not a backseat driver, in the vehicle of life. So secondly, fear the Lord, verses 7 and 8. The second wise way of relating to the Lord is described as fear. Do not, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. I suggested earlier that the more we trust the Lord, the less we will fear, the more we'll have peace. But here in this very next verse in Proverbs 3, we're told that we are, in fact, to fear. It's another imperative, a command in Hebrew. Fear the Lord. Doesn't it seem that those two things, trust and fear, are mutually exclusive? If I'm afraid of something like, for instance, the pit bull that's running behind me as I'm jogging, I will not trust it. My fear cancels out my trust. But if I trust something like, for example, the owner of the pit bull who actually has his dog on a leash, I will not be afraid. My trust cancels out my fear. How can we both trust the Lord and fear the Lord at the same time? Some people answer this by saying that the word fear here doesn't really mean fear as we think of it, but it means to revere or highly esteem. Now, there's something true in that definition, but it's also a little bit misleading. Because to fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed by Him, to see Him as colossal, the one with power over life and death, the one who gives breath, who could remove it at a moment. To fear the Lord is to look up, look up at the night sky, stretching for billions of miles and light years, and to realize my puniness in comparison. To fear the Lord is to gain a sense of His brilliant holiness, like Isaiah did, and then to see my own sin and cry out, woe is me. To fear the Lord is to feel something deep inside, something that's greater than just honor or esteem we might show to a celebrity. It's to know him as he's described in Hebrews, a consuming fire, as he's described in Genesis, the judge of all the earth, as he's described in Revelation, the one who repays everyone according to his deeds. To fear the Lord is not just to remove our hats in church as a sign of respect. It's to feel the weight of his presence deep within our souls and to recognize that we have no right to be with him. Fear is not a word for the clinic or the textbook. It's an emotional word of the Spirit. And in these two verses, we learn two things about this fear, the expression of it and the alternative to it. 
The expression of the fear of the Lord is in the last half of verse 7. Shun evil. If I'm consumed with the knowledge of the holy God in my life, I will hate sin. Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. This is another word of emotion. Hate. If I fear the Lord, I will hate evil. I'll hate pride. I'll hate arrogance. I'll hate evil behavior. I'll hate gossip. Can you think of the last time you used the words, I hate, in a sentence? Maybe it was something trivial, like I hate going to school, or something a little bit more important, like I hate paying taxes. Here we see that the fear of the Lord teaches us how to hate properly. We often see that we need God to teach us how to love. Maybe we don't always think that we need God to also teach us how to hate. The alternative to fearing the Lord is found in the last half of verse 7, being wise in my own eyes. Some people never stop to look up in the night sky and tremble in their smallness before the Creator. This is the scientist poring over his test tube, amazed at what he's discovered and going no further. This is the artist admiring his creation, not seeing a reflection of the Creator. This is the builder studying the blueprints, but failing to be in awe over the symmetry of life. This is the theologian spending hours in the Bible forgetting the one who inspired it. We find ourselves and our tasks impressive And most people, frankly, stop there. The alternative to fearing the Lord is to be content with our own greatness. I haven't yet answered the question, how can we both trust God and fear Him at the same time, when trust and fear seem to cancel each other out? To fear God is to recognize His size and His terror. To trust God is to recognize that He's absolutely dependable and not erratic. The thing that's most worthy of fear is the thing that's most worthy of trust. John Newton, in his famous song, said it like this, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." If we haven't listened, learned to fear God, we probably won't get to enjoy the peace to be gained from trusting Him. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but both of these imperatives are followed by a promise. If we trust the Lord with everything, He promises to give us straight paths. If we fear the Lord by avoiding evil, He promises us health. In other words, we experience His grace in all of life. Now, in this first sermon on Proverbs, there's just one more thing to say. God's wisdom is the thing that leads us to being most human, living the most flourishing life possible. Wisdom from God doesn't help us pick the winning lottery ticket or get our kid into the best school or ensure that we'll be free from sickness but enables us to flourish in whatever situation we are in. Our Lord Jesus possessed perfect wisdom. He saw all of life through those lenses of trust and fear, perfect submission to the Father. And later his follower Paul would write to a church that had begun to rely on their own understanding, so committed to their own narrow view of life and theology, they fought with each other, they judged the innocent, and they tolerated sinners. They created celebrities, and they debased the poor. And to this church, Paul wrote that Jesus has become our wisdom. And he was referring to the cross, the most shameful thing of all from a human perspective. And he said that the cross, the cross, is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Jesus' greatest expression of trust in the Father was bearing a cross he didn't have to bear. It's the epitome of wisdom. 
The crucified Jesus has become our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And we rest in his wisdom given by faith to the unwise as we walk in his wisdom and as we share his cross, dying to ourselves and finding life in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of instruction that you give to us through your word. Thank you that you care so much about all the aspects of our lives, that you, in a very detailed and painstaking way, teach us about how to live it. And we ask that you will bless us with eyes to see, hearts that are humble and willing to receive, and that we could walk in the way of our Lord Jesus, who truly is our wisdom. So we receive the gift of your word, your spirit, your guidance in our lives, asking you to help us apply. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. On your screen, there's going to be a few reflection questions, so I invite you to take some time and, uh, and a few minutes just to ponder those questions either by yourself or together with people that are watching uh, this service with you. Today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we come as people who share in the cross of Christ. We come with our wonderful gifts and our terrible sins, our differing politics and our shifting emotions, as people who were once God's enemies but have been adopted as beloved children. God is the all-wise Father, and Jesus, the crucified one, is our wisdom. As we receive the bread and the cup today, we remember who we were as recipients of God's grace And we mostly remember our Lord Jesus, who freely shares with us his body and his blood. Let's pray. We thank you, our Lord God, for these gifts of the bread and for the cup, what they represent to us in our crucified Lord Jesus, who is present with us every time that we gather. Thank you today that you are with us, and these reminders are here to remind us of your presence how much you love us, and the extent that you were willing to go to demonstrate your love for us. Because while we were sinners, our Lord Jesus died for us. So we receive these gifts from your hand with great thanksgiving today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So our Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. As often as you eat this bread, do so in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And then after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. We honor you, our Lord Jesus, who gave everything for us. And we believe that now because we are in you, as individuals, as as a community, that there's nothing in all of creation 
that will ever be able to separate us from the love that you have for us, our God, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. To you be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.